Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sued, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, the Lord God called to them and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Um, some good friends of my family when we lived in Tucson, Arizona, uh, had a cabin on one of the mountains right next to the city. And uh, this is a great mountain to go up in the hot summers in the desert. It was about a 30 or 40 degree difference. And it was really an idyllic place, pristine, beautiful, just a magnificent and amazing place to be. And uh, in the early 2000s, someone lit a cigarette and threw the cigarette on the ground in the middle of a drought and started a fire. And the fire erupted all over Mount Lemmon, burning down most of the cabins on the mountain. And when you would drive up after the fire, it looked completely different. It was shattered. It was broken. It was a place that had once been beautiful that had now been decimated. It had been torched. I imagine that if we spend some time individually thinking about situations that we've seen or encountered where things were once really, really good and now are really, really bad, we could come up with an amazing variety of situations and scenarios. The origin of that experience is what we read about this morning together in Genesis chapter 3. We see that God has made everything good. That man is the crown jewel of God's creation. That men and women are made in God's image. They've been made to serve God and to worship God and to commune with God forever. And God gave men and women a noble calling in the world, in the garden. He gave us companionship with one another through the institution of marriage. These are the things that we've been studying together in the past couple of weeks. Things look good. In fact, God himself says of everything that he has made, it was good. It was beautiful. Genesis 1 and 2 repeatedly tell us that. 
Man was to love and serve and live with God and enter into God's eternal rest. But like that cigarette dropped on the dry grass of Mount Lemmon, changed everything. So the events of Genesis chapter 3 change everything. The story here takes an abrupt and a tragic turn for the worst. Everything changes in Genesis 3. Theologians have for ages called the events that were just read for you the fall. The fall. Because this is the story of humanity's fall from innocence. Their fall from goodness. Their fall from God himself. It's the story of humanity rejecting God. It's the story of sin entering the world and crushing much of the beauty that God has made. But thankfully, even in Genesis 3, we see that the story doesn't end with rebellion, but with forgiveness and with renewal. And so that's what I want us to think about together this morning for a couple of minutes. As we look at the fall, here's how I want to summarize for you the main point. Humanity has rejected God as king by sinning against him, and the consequences are massive. That's the teaching of these verses. Humanity has rejected God as king by sinning against him, and the consequences are massive. Three points as we work through this. The temptation to sin is the first thing we'll see. Then the first sin. Then the consequences of sin. The temptation to sin, the first sin, the consequences of sin. So first we see, beginning in verse 1, the temptation to sin. The author shifts gears here and tells us about the serpent's. He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made, we read. And it's important for you to see here at the very beginning that this is not just any serpent. This is the serpent. You know, if you're a hockey fan and you say the great one, you know that that refers to Wayne Gretzky, the greatest hockey player of all time. If you're, a, uh, if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan and have been for some time and you hear someone talk about the catch, you get bad feelings on the inside because that refers to a catch that Dwight Clark made in the early 80s that propelled the 49ers to beat the Cowboys. That's a different sermon for a different day. Just like the catch and the great one, this is the serpent. The serpent. It's not just any serpent. The serpent himself, however, it's Lucifer. It's the devil. We know this from later in the Bible. For example, in John chapter 8, Jesus himself says that the devil is the father of lies. And especially in Revelation chapter 12, John there writes that the devil is the great dragon, that ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. So the evil one in the form of a serpent, this venomous liar, sneaks into the garden right up to Adam and Eve, and he begins to speak. He begins to tempt. And Adam and Eve listen. Look at what he says. Did God actually say? Did God really say? That's the opening attack that Satan gives to Eve. And then he repeats the command that God gave to Adam in 2.16. But notice how he manipulates and changes what God has commanded. Satan says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, of course, God didn't say that. And Satan knows full well that God didn't say that. But right away, the evil one is planting into Eve's mind mistrust. Mistrust concerning God's word and God's truthfulness. 
And you can almost imagine what's happening inside of Adam and Eve's heads here. It's as if they're thinking, well, no, God only forbade us from eating of this one tree. But you know what? Now that I think about it, that is a little bit weird. I mean, why would God not want us to eat from this tree? Why would God deny that from me? What's God hiding? We know that they're thinking that because Eve and her response to the evil one slightly exaggerates what God has commanded. She says, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. An exaggeration. God had not said, don't touch the tree, but Eve adds that. And Satan immediately picks up on Eve's comment. It's like he delivered a few jabs with the first question, and now he goes in for the uppercut, for the knockouts. He comes out with an outright denial of what God had said. Verse 4, you will not surely die. First, Satan gave a half-truth, a distortion of God's word, and now we see him give a bold contradiction of God's word. And look at how the devil justifies this contrary information. He says, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God. Now, you need to think about this with me. What Satan is doing here is making it seem outrageous, outrageous that God would deny this to Adam and Eve. Satan is saying, God is selfish. And that's really coming down, isn't it? God is selfish. I'm distracted. So Satan is saying God is jealous. God is selfish. In fact, God's really not going to put you to death. That's not true. He just doesn't want you to get to the tree. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have what he has and to know what he knows. God is holding you back. That's what Satan is insinuating. He's preventing you from being fully you. At the root of this temptation is Satan causing Adam and Eve to doubt. To doubt God's motives. To doubt God's goodness. And above all, to doubt God's love. God's love for them. And here's what is so important in this story. It's a reflection of all of our stories because ever since this, people everywhere are prone to doubt God's love. Do you doubt God's love? What drives us away from God is the seed of doubt concerning his love for us. And we see this every day in our lives. Why are we so often jealous? Why are we so often often jealous of others and their lives? Well, at the root, it's because we doubt that God loves us because if he did, surely he would take as good a care of us as he apparently does of them. Why do we lie? Why do we hide the truth about ourselves from others? At the root, it's because we doubt that God loves us. We think that if he did love us and we were to come clean and confess and tell the truth, we're going to get smashed and not forgiven. Why do we grow up so often in and around church, and then as we get older, we leave the church and go out on our own. Well, ultimately, it's because we believe that God's law for us is a sign of his failure to love us and not a confirmation of his love for us. We think if God really loved me, he would let me do whatever feels right. If God really loved me, he wouldn't constrain me with rules. 
We can see here how the fatal strain of sin has infected every single one of us. We all, in one way or another, doubt God's love. And that is what drives us away from him. That was and is the work of the tempter, the work of the evil one. So Satan seduces Eve. He convinces her that God is not a good king. That obedience to God is not best for her. That God is actually constraining Eve and holding her back. And so we see, secondly, the first sin. The French commentator Henri Blochet puts it like this. Of the God who is generosity itself, the serpent sketches a portrait of miserliness. He projects the false perspective of a rivalry between God and man. He puts it into Eve's mind that God is her rival and not her father. And so Eve begins to fall and Adam with her. By the way, you might wonder, where is Adam when all this is going on? And the answer is, he's standing right there next to Eve. How do we know that? Two ways. First, all the verbs, or excuse me, all of the yous in verse 2 through verse 5 are plural. Really, Satan's saying y'all. So Texans should translate it that way. So Adam's right there. And then the second reason we know that is in verse 6. Eve very clearly gives the fruit to her husband who's there with her, we see in verse 6, and he ate. So Adam's right there with Eve the whole time. And Eve, full of desire for the fruit, look in verse 6, full of delight in the fruit, takes the fruit and eats it. And she gives it to Adam and he eats it. And it's very clear that this is the first overt act of rebellion against God. This is the first instance of what the Bible repeatedly calls sin. It's the first breaking of God's law. And what I want us to focus on just for a couple of minutes here is how this story shows us the real nature, the real nature of sin. Yeah, Adam and Eve do what God tells them not to do. They break the rule, right? That's certainly a part of what's going on here. But that's not all that sin involves, What's happening here really is that Adam and Eve believe the lie of Satan and reject the truth of God. What's happening here is a transfer of allegiance. It's a transfer of allegiance from God to self, really. It's a movement from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of self. And the breaking of the rule is just an effect It's a consequence of the transfer of allegiance. What do we learn here about sin? We learn that sin, above all else, is cosmic rebellion against our king, against God. At the very heart of sin lies the claim to autonomy. It is each one of us saying, I want to be God, and I don't want God to be God. It's our heart's overreach. It's our heart's attempt to conquer God's throne. So the fall is humanity willfully entering into the domain of sin and willfully leaving the domain of love. That's what sin is. Listen to, listen to Fleming Rutledge. She writes, to be in sin, biblically speaking, means something very much more consequential than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. 
Listen to C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Here's the truth. Every single one of us wants to downplay. Every single one of us in one way or another wants to downplay the significance of sin. Especially our own sin. When we sin, we typically either externally say things like or internally think things like, well, nobody's perfect, right? Or uh, I misspoke. Or we all make mistakes. Or we will compare ourselves to others to downplay the significance of sin, right? Jesus tells a story in one of the gospels, Luke, I think around Luke 18, about a Pharisee who gets up to pray and the Pharisee prays right there in public. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this poor tax collector here. We, like that Pharisee, do not understand, we do not understand that sin is not defined by comparing ourselves to someone else. But by grasping how deeply we are enmeshed in this world that's mired in godlessness. And if you think I'm wrong about that, just listen to yourself next time you're forced to apologize to someone. Is it specific or vague? Is it fully forthcoming or do you hold some things back still? Is it intended to deflect or minimize your contribution? Here's the point. None of you can understand your story. None of you can understand, really, the grace of God. None of you can really get the hope of the gospel until you see the gravity of your own sin. You cannot see rightly the magnitude of what God in Jesus undertook at the cross until you see the the corresponding magnitude of your own personal sinfulness, your offense against God, your rebellion against him, just like Adam and Eve rebelled against him. You see the temptation to sin. We see the first sin and then the remaining verses beginning in seven tell us about the consequences of sin. You know, verse six is just a tragic verse, but I think verse seven might be even more so. We see immediate devastating consequences to Adam and Eve's rebellion, to their attempts to overthrow God, to their transfer of allegiance. As soon as sin enters the world, did you notice this? It is just as we know it. It's complex, and it's involved, and it's multivalent. It's like an octopus with its spreading tentacles, or like a cancer with its manifold metastases. And briefly, I want you to look at four consequences of sin that you see immediately in these verses. First, verse 7 tells us that sin brings shame. Shame. The first thing we read when sin entered the world, is that Adam and Eve's eyes were both opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, that's a very complex verse. There's a lot going on there, but essentially what's happening is you see that Adam and Eve now experience shame, which is a complicated and disorienting experience that every single one of us have. Essentially, shame says, I am unpresentable. I am unpresentable. And Adam and Eve now, in the immediate aftermath of their sin against God, feel unpresentable before each other, even in their marriage, 
So they cover themselves and they feel unpresentable, more importantly, before God. They're embarrassed by themselves and they're embarrassed to know the other. If you think about it, shame often comes as a result of our associations. My mom tells a story about um, when she was a little kid. She has an older sister who's six years older than her. And uh, her older sister would drive her to school. She would drop her off at the middle school. And then the sister would move on to high school. And every day when the older sister, my Aunt Tricia, was driving. I hope she's not listening to this. When she was driving my mom mom to school, she would make my mom duck down in the back seat. (laughs) So that no one would know that this 12th grader was consorting with a 6th grader. And so every day my mom had to cower (laughs) in the back seat and quickly and quietly crawl out of the car before anyone saw. And then Aunt Tricia would speed off to high school. She was ashamed. She was ashamed of her association with her sister. We've all experienced things like that. And that's a result of sin. Instead of feeling accepted and embraced, Adam and Eve immediately feel that creeping isolation and stigma of shame. The reason that we experience shame is because of sin. That's what this story teaches. Whether it's shame as a result of our own sin or shame as the result of the sin of others, this horrifying feeling and experience that we're all in a way born into entered into this world as a result of sin. What the story of the scripture tells us is that we all were once completely vulnerable before one another and before God and were okay with it. They were naked and unashamed at the end of chapter two, but that is no longer the case. Sin brings shame. Second, sin brings self-covering. Look again, verse seven. Immediately after they sense their own nakedness, immediately after they experience shame for the first time, what do Adam and Eve do? They attempt to cover themselves. They attempt to alleviate the problem on their own. They immediately move into, I must fix this mindsets. They immediately work towards self-justification. This is just freighted with folly Rather than their sin and shame driving them back to God, their guilt, their shame leads them into a self-atoning, self-protecting procedure. They must cover themselves quickly. Sin causes us to do the same thing. We attempt to cover. We attempt to wear masks. We all become experts in life in presenting ourselves in a way that will prevent people from understanding and seeing who we really are. We do this by exaggerating our achievements. We do this by name-dropping people we're connected to in crucial moments in a conversation. We do this by mastering the masquerade of just churchy Christianity. So we can show up in a place like this every week and seem to have it all together and raise our hands in worship and close our eyes in prayer and listen attentively to the sermon and our life is a complete wreck and no one knows it because we're experts at self-atonement. We're experts at covering ourselves. We do this by working hard to feel like we're really worth something. We do this to gain a whole world and yet all the while we're losing our soul. 
Sin brings shame. Sin brings self-covering. Third, sin brings hiding. Verses 8 through 10. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They hid from the presence of God. That's sad. That's tragic beyond comprehension, really. You might have read this story a million times, but you need to just ruminate on that for a minute. Think of what their relationship with God was like minutes before. Minutes earlier, they walked with him and talked with him and loved him and were loved by him. And now it's all different. Now we have an inherent desire to hide. Why? Well, because we're guilty. And rather than confess our guilt, just like Adam and Eve here, we try to hide our guilt. Now you and I, we read this and we think how silly it is that they think they can hide from God behind some random palm tree in the middle of Eden. I mean, I'm sure Eden had some amazing palm trees, but you can't hide from God. Listen, it's no less silly for any of us to try to hide from God. Some of you have spent your entire adult lives trying to hide from God. Some of you have spent every waking moment avoiding eye contact with the one who made you. I remember earlier in my parenting life, I would come home from work. I'm sure a lot of you dads have had similar experiences. And when Marianne was at home, she would have had a hard day sometimes. And she would say, you need to talk to one of your children. All of them will remain nameless. They're all guilty of this. I love them, but they're all guilty of this one. <laughs> Just like we're all guilty of it. And I'd say, all right, go upstairs. Nate, where are you? Ainsley, where are you? Ben, where are you? And I can't find them anywhere. And then I look on their bed and their bed's made beautifully. And there's a huge bump right there in the middle of their bed. And you know, I've played this up a couple times. Hmm, let's see. Under the bed. Look out the window. I don't see them anywhere. Oh, maybe they're there under the bed. We think that's so funny, but that's the way we operate with God all the time. We hide. The one who made us to know him now experiences us constantly running from him. Sin brings shame. Sin brings self-covering. Sin brings hiding. Last, sin brings blame. Verse 11. Verse 10. Verse 9, the Lord God said, hey, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. That's another thing. They're afraid of God now. Not a godly fear, but a craven fear. They're afraid of him because I was naked and I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam say? Not the last time in the history of the world this one's happened. It was her fault. This one that was made to be my helper and that we're equals and we fit together perfectly and now I'm not alone anymore and she's beautiful. And last chapter, I was singing a poem to her and this chapter I'm saying she did it. Sin causes blame. Sin causes a refusal to own and admit our own failings. Adam blames Eve. Really, he blames God. The woman you gave me, God. I wouldn't be in the situation if you hadn't created her for me. Why'd you have to put me to sleep? Just leave me awake and I would be fine. So God turns to Eve and he says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And 
The woman said, the serpent, he did it. Eve does the same thing because sin results in constant blame shifting. Sin results in shattered relationships. It results in deflecting your own role. It ultimately results in the world's problems and our problems being God's fault in our eyes. How often do we do this, right? Sin tells us that our problems are always mainly the result of someone else's action. We might admit some fault, but primarily it is she, they, he, or it that is to blame. Sin makes everything a mess, doesn't it? This story is driving you, and it's driving me to see the gravity of sin. And next week, we're going to see the final consequence of sin, death and separation from God. But as we close up for now, I want to show you one more thing. I want you to see how even in this really, really tragic and sad story, the grace of God is present. Even these verses display for us the radical gravity of sin and the radical love of God. Notice how God approaches Adam and Eve. Did you catch that in the reading? What did God say to them? In the day you eat of the fruit, what? You will surely die. In fact, in the original language, that is emphasized. It's sort of like dying, you shall die. You were D-E-A-D, all caps, period. But they don't immediately die. And God approaches them and doesn't destroy them immediately. He knows what's happened, but he attempts to, to coax a confession out of Adam and Eve here, right? There's something happening here about the grace and the character and the nature of God that I don't want you to miss out on. In this pronouncement of judgment, in this rebellion against the king and his kingdom, God is extending grace yet again. He is wooing Adam. He's wooing Adam out of shame and into confession. Why do you think God asks these questions? I mean, it's not like God doesn't know what happened. It's not like he's making dinner and the kid's doing something stupid behind mom's back and God, whoa, whoa, what's this? God knows exactly what's going on. He's not like, hey, have you eaten the fruit? As if he doesn't know the answer. God's saying this because he's wanting Adam to come clean. God's not coming to Adam saying, what in the world is this? He's saying, Adam, what happened? Who told you this? What have you done? Even in the very beginning, God said, if you eat that, you're going to die. They ate that and they didn't die. God shows up, not with a hammer, but coaxing them out of their shame. He says, what have you done? Did you do what I told you not to do? You see already the pursuing love of a gracious father to his rebel children. They had tried to hide. They had tried to cover themselves. They immediately worked to atone for their own failings without telling anyone else what they were doing. But God doesn't let them do that either, which is why we see in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That tells us something about God. This God, the only true God, is a God who covers us when we can't cover ourselves. The gospel actually tells us that God has acted to cover us in righteousness, to cover us in guiltlessness, 
to cover us by removing our shame, to cover us so that we can draw near to him again as an adopted child of a loving father. And he does this by taking the punishment of a sin himself. Adam and Eve didn't immediately die there in the garden because even in that moment, God knew that he was going to die instead. God knew that he was going to send his son to crush the head of the serpent via death on a cross. God knew that the only way to get them back to the tree of life was to send Jesus to the tree of death, which he does for them thousands and thousands of years later. But you see it promised. You see it envisaged even here. We serve a God who made us and loves us. The truth is that every single one of us deep down know that because we're made in his image. And every single one of us in an infinite variety of ways, every single moment of every single day resists that that's true because we're sinners. Every single one of us lies and hides and tries to fix ourselves and refuses to admit the depth of our own brokenness. And every single one of us needs to hear that Jesus has covered you. You cannot cover yourself. You have no more chance of hiding from God than Adam and Eve with some fig leaves over their private parts stood of hiding from God in the garden. The only person that can cover you is God himself. And he does it for free in Jesus. And so Genesis 3 tells us of the brokenness of the world. It tells us of the brokenness of each of our lives. And it tells us of the freedom to be found in the covering mercy of God received by faith through Jesus. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the comforts of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. Let's pray.